Is that green? Thank you, James and worship team. Very nice. There's your guitar pick. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts 15, verse 30. Yeah, we've got a world-class worship team. This is a good-looking group up there. I want to start just by reading this passage that we're going to study this morning. Acts 15, 30 through 41. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And so, when they were sent away, they went down to Antioch. And having gathered the church, the congregation together, they delivered the letter. What letter? I'm going to talk about it in a minute. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Now, Judas, not Judas Iscariot, a different Judas, and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. I want you to notice that, Ron Miller. Lengthy message. Verse 33, after they had spent time there, that is Judas and Silas at Antioch Bible Fellowship, they were sent away from the brethren in peace, go back home to Jerusalem for them, uh, to those who had sent them out. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching, and there's, those are two different things, teaching and preaching, that should overlap, with many others, they're not the only ones who are capable of teaching, also, and guess what? They weren't teaching Reader's Digest or the Oprah Winfrey's memoirs. They were teaching the Word of God. Verse 36. After some days, according to Harold Honer, three or four or five months later, Paul said to Barnabas, who they just finished the first missionary journey, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the Word of the Lord. In fact, during what we would call first missionary journey, see how they're doing. See how they are. And obviously Barnabas wanted to go, but he had an issue. Barnabas wanted to take John. You know him as Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark, the guy who's the human author of the second gospel, is the guy we're disagreeing about at this point. Barnabas wanted to take John, better known as Mark, along with them. Paul, Barnabas, Mark, second missionary journey. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him should not take Mark at this point on this work along who had deserted them about a third of the way during the first missionary journey in Perga of Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. He had dropped out. And there, watch this, Henry, verse 39, and there occurred such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas you know, if you have two people disagreeing at church, obviously one can't be saved. One can't really love the Lord. One must be really messed up. I'm pretty sure Paul was saved. I'm pretty sure Paul was a believer. Would you agree? Gotta be. Pretty sure Barnabas was a believer. Okay? It's okay to disagree with other believers. It's okay. When's the last time you heard a preacher tell you that? From the pulpit. It's okay for Christians to disagree. But you gotta fight fair. You gotta disagree the right way. So, this is serious. There occurred, verse 39, such a sharp disagreement on this personnel policy issue. This isn't the deity of Christ. It's not essential, but it's important that they separated from one another. Not, they didn't hate each other, they continue to work together later, but they're gonna go on different trips now. Barnabas took Mark with him, and they sailed away to Cyprus. That was the first phase of the first missionary journey. But Paul chose Silas as his helper and left Antioch in Syria, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia. He's going back to the second aspect of the first missionary journey. Wow, among many other things. And you know what, David? I forgot to pull up my PowerPoint. He's showing the, the generic one. But this is working today. I didn't mess it up, I don't think. I've been messing up my PowerPoint more often than not. Okay, David. I think I'm, I got it. Yeah, this passage is talking about several things, but it's zeroing in, I think, on dealing with disagreements 
with other believers God's way. And basically it teaches us this, that when we deal with disagreements God's way, we further his kingdom by respecting differences of opinion between and among believers and at the same time refusing to tear down the other person, hold grudges against the other person, against those we disagree with. Now, watch this. Important disclaimer. Okay, listen to me here. When when I'm saying it's okay to disagree and we ought to process it right and stay together and move on and work together where we can and not doubt, pout, and drop out and that kind of stuff. Uh, When I'm talking about disagreements, I'm talking about disagreeing about what I would call nuts and bolts issues. Uh, Just practical, pragmatic, program, uh, policy differences, even personality conflicts. What day of the week should Mimi teach the new ladies' PM Bible study? I mean, should it be Tuesday? That's what they ended up with. Or should it be Thursday? If Thursday is your preference and they end up on Tuesday, should you get mad? Uh, it might be more inconvenient for you. Thursday might be impossible for you to come to that. Well, you know what? Maybe God's got other things for you, but sometimes we disagree about the color of the carpet or how the chairs are set up and stuff. And I'm picky about how the chairs are set up, aren't I? But it's not the end of the world, you know? It's okay to disagree about stuff like that without vilifying people who have a different opinion than we do. So I'm not talking, I'm talking about these kind of practical things. I'm not talking about the deity of Christ or, uh, I'm not saying, ah, James, uh, embezzled $500,000 from the uh, youth account. If we got that much in it, Ron, let me know, because i got other things we could do with it. Okay? Um, you know, they remodeled my office about a year ago, and it's just beautiful. It's beyond anything I ever even dreamed of having, and we were able to do more things in there. It's really nice. And uh, But the one problem with my new office is I want it to be oval. I want it to be oval. So they totally blew that, but we didn't have enough money for that. But, yeah, I mean... Uh, We're not talking about major moral issues. We're not talking about major doctrinal issues. We're talking about the color of the carpet, whether or not this guy is fit to go on this mission trip right now. Barnabas was convinced he could handle it and it would be good for him. Paul says, you know what, the kid's still wet behind the ears and we just can't trust him yet. I love him, but I don't want to hand him the ball on the goal line because he's fumbled once. I don't want him to fumble again. We'll work with him and down the road he will. So that's what we're talking about here. It's a very practical passage, and what we learn here can really help us think about and deal with disagreements in church circles, outside of church circles, in a godly way, in a way that uh, ultimately honors Him. So let's pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word. Let's pray for our peace officers, our firefighters, our active military, and let's pray for the, I think it's 30 ladies on the retreat today, and uh when when is their ETA back to Duncan? Do we, does anybody know? Because I didn't hear that. Next week sometime. Okay. Well, you know Zane Zane about five uh, leave. Um, Zane told me that he missed Blanche, his beloved wife, three different times since she left. Yesterday at lunch, yesterday at dinner, and this morning at breakfast. So you know when they leave, it makes it tough on a lot of us. So uh, let's let's pray for those things, and I know I can depend on mighty Mike Palovic not to fumble on the goal line for me. So no pressure, brother, but lead us in prayer, okay? Thank you, Mike. Um, yeah, we come to uh, Acts 15. In fact, we're going to finish Acts chapter 15 today. There are uh, Gerald, there are 28 chapters in the book, so we're more than halfway through, just a little bit past halfway through. And you know, as we go through this book, there's a lot of details we're learning, but it would be nice if we could kind of carry around the essence of each chapter in our head. And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if we had some kind of a system that would make it fairly easy for 15-year-old young men to remember the essential content of the book of Acts? Would that be a good thing? It would be a great thing, yeah. Jesus is alive as head of his bride. Chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. The Lord dies for our sins on the cross. Three days later, what happens? Resurrection. Re- resurrection. A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. The resurrected one's the only one who can. Forty days after the resurrection, Jesus ascends to heaven, bodily, visibly, and an angel who talks to the gawking disciples as Jesus disappears says, this same Jesus who left like this, physically, supernaturally, visibly, will come again. Talking about the second advent. Chapter 1, 
Jesus. We're talking about Jesus. J-E-S, J-E-S-U-S. Jesus is alive. What's chapter 2? That's right. Establishment of the New Testament church. Acts 2, day of Pentecost, 10 days after the ascension. What happened in chapter 3? John and Peter go to the temple, and there's a guy who's been begging in front of the temple for decades, and they just flat heal him. So everybody in Jerusalem knows about this new church, the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, what happens to John and, and Peter for their trouble? They get uh, arrested and held overnight and kind of kind of jostled, they'll say. Chapter 4, the apostles continue to preach about Jesus and all 12 of them, including Matthias, the new one, uh, are taken into the authorities and told very sternly, don't you keep doing this. If you keep talking about Jesus, you're in big trouble. And Peter just says, hey, respectfully, sir, I cannot follow that order. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby people must be saved. So J-E-S-U-S, what does chapter 5 talk about? Sin in the church. I think worse than external persecution is internal corruption. Ananias and Sapphira, money issues, the love of money is root of all evil. Uh, I want I want to prove to somebody sometime that if I could win the lottery, it would not corrupt me. Okay, and I am a tither, which as we all know is twenty three point three three percent. So, uh, but I, I very seldom buy a ticket, so I probably won't win. Uh, that's Jesus. Jesus is alive. I, chapter six, influence of devi- devoted deacons. We got a we got a program issue. Some of the widows aren't happy with the way things are being set up and mobilized. And some of them are really upset, and they go to the apostles and say, fix it. The apostles say, hey, we need to do this right, but we've got some other things we need to do. So let's delegate this task to seven men, including Stephen and Philip. What happens in the next chapter? Stephen, one of the first deacons, is stoned to death because of his testimony about Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem, only maybe 500 yards away from where the cross was. Okay? Jesus is alive. Chapter 8. Uh, a broad meaning outside of the Jerusalem vicinity with Philip, the second deacon, in Samaria. What did Jews think about Samaritans? They had spiritual cooties, right? But Philip goes right up there. God doesn't see it that way, nor did the Lord Jesus. And he preaches Jesus. They believe and get saved. Then he's taken to, to the road uh, uh, to Gaza, Gaza Strip, where Hamas hangs out to drop bombs on Israelis nowadays, and he preaches Jesus to an Ethiopian government official who's on his way back home. And, hey, Ed, it just so happens the Ethiopians got the Isaiah scroll. And he's reading Isaiah 53, and Philip gets in the chariot and says, you know, you understand what you're reading? And he goes, no, who's he talking about? Is the is Isaiah talking about himself, the suffering servant, or somebody else? And Philip says, let me tell you. Okay, let me tell you. It's all about the Lord Jesus. Uh, alive. What happens in chapter 9? Saul becomes Paul. Saul, a guy who killed Christians for a living, believes in the Lord Jesus and suddenly becomes a guy who will write 13 of the 27 New Testament books. What happens in chapter 10? This is big, Caitlin. Chapter 10, Peter, not Philip, go at God's command, goes to a Gentile Roman soldier's house at the capital city, Caesarea, tells them about Jesus. They all believe and get saved as Gentiles. Nobody can believe it back in Jerusalem, so Peter has to verify their salvation by grace through faith. And then chapter 12, guess what happens? We have a ratcheting up of the persecution. It's one thing to arrest the apostles and warn them and let them go. It's another thing for a mob to get out of control and kill one guy. It's something else when the formal government, uh, the powers that be, arrest one apostle, James and John, the brothers. Here's James, first apostle to be killed. That's by, uh, that's after due process of law. That's a deliberate, uh, execution. And then because, uh, Herod realizes, pleased uh, his constituency after he killed James, what did he do? He arrested another apostle. Who did he arrest? Peter. What's he going to do to him? Tomorrow morning I'm going to kill him too. But Peter is supernaturally delivered. I often have wondered, 
what did James' mother think after Peter got supernaturally rescued? James' mother was at a prayer meeting the night he got arrested. The next morning he gets killed. James' mother was at a prayer meeting the night after Peter was arrested and God supernaturally delivers him. You know what? God had different stuff for Peter to do than he had for James to do. Uh, he's got different things for Billy Graham to accomplish than Brad McCoy. I've got a lot more gifts and talents than, than Billy Graham ever had. You know that, right? Uh, Jesus is alive as a Antioch Bible Fellowship in Syria sends out missionaries. That's the first missionary journey. Synagogues attack Paul and Barnabas after Mark quits. And then last week we saw in chapter 15, heresy corrected. The question in, in Jerusalem that was debated was, do Gentiles have to become Jews before they can become Christians? Do Gentiles have to pre-qualify before they believe and get saved? If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, doesn't it make sense that Gentiles have to become Jews before they believe in the Messiah and get all their sins forgiven and get to go to heaven? And the answer is no. They don't have to pre-qualify. Whosoever will may come. Uh, but to the one who does not work but believes on Christ who justifies the ungodly, that unbeliever's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So we had heresy corrected last week in the Jerusalem Council, as it's called, and now we're going to see honest disagreement in the aftermath of that wonderful affirmation that salvation is by faith in Jesus for everybody. Iraqi, American, black, white, rich, poor, religious, irreligious, moral, immoral, doesn't matter. In an aftermath of that, we disagree. Uh, as head, we're going to see Europe evangelized, apathy in Athens, and it's going to go on. But that's a nice review, okay? At least in my opinion. Now, let's think about our passage today. Our passage breaks down into two parts. And it's kind of interesting the way it works. We have definite good news, James. Really good news because the the formal statement of the apostles in Jerusalem that Gentiles and Jews are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, no prequalifications necessary, is taken up in a letter form to the church in Antioch. And they're all Gentiles, so they're really happy that people see it the way God did on a major doctrinal issue. There's no debate about that. Definite good news, right, Elliot? But look at the second part of the passage. Disguise good news. You might say, oh, it's too bad they disagreed and had to go their separate ways. You know what? It's really not bad news. You get a lot more bang for the buck with Paul and Barnabas splitting and doing evangelism than them staying together and doing follow-up. A lot of people could do that follow-up. These two guys need to be on the edge of the spear, so to speak. So a lot of times our plan B is God's plan A. Our disappointments are often God's appointments. Let's look at first the definite good news. Look at verse 30 and 31. So when they, go back to verse 22 to find out who they was. Verse 22, same chapter. Then after the Jerusalem meeting where the apostles and the elders of the church hammered out the fact that, yes, Gentiles and anybody and everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior has given the gift of eternal life. There's no prequalifications. Look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem who had hammered all that out in a public meeting with the whole church to choose men from among them in the Jerusalem church to send back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, who were down there for the meeting. They hung out. Uh, they were based in Antioch. But we're going to send Judas, called Barsabbas, that's his nickname, and Silas, better known as Silvanus, that's his formal name, Silas is his nickname, uh, leading men among the brethren. Okay, keep that in mind. So we've got Paul, Barnabas, Joe, and Silas, and Judas, called Barsabbas. That's who we're talking about. Look at verse 30, Matt. And when they, Paul, Barnabas, Judas, known as Barsabbas, and Silas were sent away from Jerusalem. They went down to Antioch. They're going north, but they're going down elevation-wise. Jerusalem's on top of a mountain. You're going down that way. And having gathered the congregation of the church in Antioch, who've been waiting with bated breath, what we know what the truth is, but what are the apostles going to affirm this, or are we going to have five different versions of Christianity? What's going to happen? Well, when the letter that was hammered out is delivered, Paul, Barnabas read the letter, and when they read it, verse 31, the church rejoiced. Wow, they understand that salvation is by grace. You can't earn it. Uh, grace means unmerited favor. Who does all the work necessary to get Savannah Bowers from earth to heaven? 
Jesus, the Savior, does all the work. And so if Jesus does all the work, we receive it through faith, which is uh, a rational act, but it's not a meritorious work. It's like the empty hands, as Calvin said, uh, that receives of a beggar that receives the free gift. So that's what that's the first part of the good news. We read the letter. We're all on the same page. It's all been debated. All these legalists who are telling these Gentiles you got to become Jews now in order to really be saved are all wet theologically. Look at verse 32 and uh, 33, 34. You know, let's, let's stop there. I'm going too fast. I'm trying to tell my brain to slow down. The older I get, the faster my brain seems to spin when I get in front of people and want to say important stuff. So I forgot something. Let's think about the gospel for a minute that the apostles affirmed. Go back to chapter 15, verse 9 uh, through 11. This, at, what did they say at this meeting? Well, the, the big meeting was based on the fact, verse 1, that some of the folks in the church from a pharisaical background were saying, uh, unless Gentiles are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, and keep the law, they can't possibly be saved. Okay, That was the issue. Now look what Peter says in verse 9 of chapter 15. Uh, in fact, let's go to um, verse 7, just for some context. After there had been much debate about this issue, do you have to pre-qualify and jump through some hoop religiously before you can believe and be saved or what? Peter stood up and said, Brethren, you know that in the early days of the church, back in chapter 10, Cornelius's and the Roman soldiers' conversion in his household, that in the early days of the church, several years before this, God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them giving them the Holy Spirit. When they believed, they were saved, sealed, and delivered. Verse 9, And he, God, made no distinction between us, folks from a Jewish background, and them, Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 11, bottom line. Verse 11, we believe that we, Jewish folks, are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus by believing in him in the same way they also are. That's the thing. Now, go to Romans chapter 3. You've got to let the clear teachings of Scripture inform the more obscure teachings of Scripture. And if you want to see the way Paul thinks about eternal life and how you receive it, you go to Romans 3. You go to a lot of places. But I would say this is one of the best places to start. Okay, Romans 3.20. This is just, these are uh, eight verses you ought to really know well because they're just that important. Okay, Romans 3.20. Listen to this, folks. By the works of the law or any other list of do's and don'ts, no flesh, no human being, Jew or Gentile, black or white, will be justified in God's sight. Because we can't keep our own standards, much less God's. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin, because we all break the law. But now, verse 20, apart, verse 21, excuse me, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been clearly manifested. No reason to doubt this. Consistent with the Old Testament law and prophets. I'm talking about the righteousness, verse 22, of God, which Carla Buchanan accessed through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's not just nice, good-looking people like Carla Buchanan, but it's for all who believe in Christ. Even old guys who have bad toupee. Somebody asked me at Cameron recently, is that your toupee? And I said, look, you think I'd spend money on a toupee this bad? This is my hair, man. Boom. Sorry. Yeah, it's crazy. And after I got my teeth straightened, the janitor one day uh, said, Hey, your teeth look great. I said, Hey, thanks. She's 98 years old, so it doesn't matter. But uh, Not that 98-year-old people aren't important, but she wasn't flirting or anything. She said, Your teeth look great. I said, Yeah, thanks a lot. She said, Where'd you buy them? She thought they were dentures. But not that good. But anyway, yeah. For all who believe, for there is no distinction... And it's a good thing because we all need it desperately. For all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But those who believe are justified before God, given a righteous standing as a gift. There's no price tag on it. Jesus paid it all by his grace, his unmerited favor, through the redemption, the substitutionary atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, whom God 
displayed publicly in real time as a propitiation. That's a big theological word that means the satisfaction of righteous wrath by a payment or an offering. Uh, by his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness dropped down, verse 26. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness so that he would be both just, God, and the justifier of the sinner who believes in Jesus. This is the only way God can save sinners like us without compromising his character, by doing it for us, as it were. With all that in mind, where's boasting? What does Krista Bowles have to brag about in regard to her salvation? She's got someone to brag about. She's got nothing in herself to brag about. Where there's, where there is, what's the basis of boasting? That you're better than somebody else because you're a believer. You're not any better than anybody else. You've just been saved by the grace of God. It's excluded. But what kind of principle? By works? No. But by the principle of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith. Period. Apart from the works of the law or any other works. Go back to Acts 15. Boom. So, you know what? Today can be the day of salvation for you if you've never trusted Jesus Christ. I mean, the Bible says that because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. He says, unless you believe I'm here, you'll die in your sins in, in John chapter 6. But here's the thing. Salvation is based not just on a crucified Savior, but a resurrected Savior. And a dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. Not even Buddha or Muhammad or anybody else. But the resurrected, risen Jesus Christ is the only one who can. And you're saved by faith in Him. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world, and gave His only Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So, we've got the letter read. Now look at verse 32 through 34. And we're going to see Judas and Silas, who came from Jerusalem with the letter with Paul and Barnabas, before they go back home, they're going to minister. Judas and Silas also being prophets, they're receiving like apostles, direct divine revelation at that point in church history. Encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Don't have enough time to talk about the importance of lengthy messages this morning, which is an oxymoron. But if I did, I would say that, well, that's the only one, that's the only time that ever happens in the Bible and they just did the wrong thing. Well, yeah, sometimes you describe stuff they're doing even though it's not right. But in Acts 20 verse 7, check that out later. Paul preaches until midnight and a guy falls asleep and falls out of the church window. So, I've preached some long ones, but I've never gone until midnight. But I'm tempted to, today, just so you'll know. No, I'm not going to do that. I want to, but I won't. Uh, so after they strengthen the brethren at Antioch Bible Fellowship, or First Baptist Church in Antioch, or whatever they called it. I think they just called it the church in Antioch. After they spent some time there, probably a couple of weeks, maybe a month, they were sent away from the brethren in peace to those who sent them out. Verse 34 is in brackets because the best textual evidence for the New Testament doesn't have it. I think verse 34 is put in there by a scribe, well, meaningly probably in the in the margin saying that Silas stayed, but uh, verse 33 says he left. And I think people are thinking, well, in verse uh, 40, when it says Paul chose Silas, that's a problem because Silas is in Jerusalem. No, uh, the sec second part of that passage today takes place three or four or five months later. Silas has come back for a visit or to minister, and he's there in the province of God. So it's not a problem. So don't try to protect God's word by adding stuff to it. And that was a, a good faith attempt to try to clarify a problem as it makes it worse. And it's really not a problem. So that's why your Bible probably has brackets or a footnote there. If it doesn't, verse 34 just suddenly appears in like the 4th century in some late manuscripts. And it's obviously added probably with good intention. Verse 35, Paul and Barnabas, who are the resident pastor teachers at Antioch Bible Fellowship, they don't go back to Jerusalem. They stay at Antioch unless they're going on missionary trips. But Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. That's what they do. Uh, teaching and preaching with many other teachers and preachers. So they're not a one-man team. The word of the Lord. Teaching is when you take Scripture, and they're going to use Old Testament Scripture and explain what it means in context. So that Ben can walk away now and after this is over and he can read the latter part of chapter 15 of Acts and basically know what it means because we're teaching the meaning. Uh, what does this text mean in context? That's, that's teaching. Okay, Monica? Preaching is when, it's also called meddling. 
nowadays. Meddling, I mean preaching, is when the preacher takes the meaning of the text and applies it to your and his conduct, attitudes, priorities, and choices. So you always want to do a little bit of both. If I'm on the receiving end, I don't want somebody to say, you don't need to know what it means, I know what it means, here's what you need to go do, trust me. I want to be able, as somebody sitting in a pew, to read through a passage that's just been preached and know what it means, because that stays with you. Pastors come and go, you know. But I also think it's very coldly orthodox just for somebody to stand up here and diagram sentences and tell you what a text means and never talk about the implications. And if the pastor ends up stepping on your toes, as Hendricks used to say, every time I point my finger at you, realize I've got three more pointing back at me. So, you know. But actually, I point my fingers that way. So they actually point, I'm pointing at Chris and all the kids. So, so it's too convicting when you do it like that. Okay, that's the definite good news. The confirmation of the gospel by the apostles, uh, everybody's on the same page, is celebrated in the Antioch Bible Fellowship, and it's celebrated to this day. Now let's look at what I'm calling disguised good news. Paul and Barnabas go on separate missionary journeys after disagreeing about Mark's suitability for mission work at this time. Okay, look at verse 36. After some days, and as I say, Harold Honer, who wrote the kind of the book on New Testament chronology, says uh, three or four or five months after verse 35, verse 36 happens. Over the winter, you didn't travel during the winter. You've got to let the winter go by, and then early spring you can think about missionary trips. So after some days, three or four or five months, Paul said to Barnabas, those are the two guys that did the first missionary journey, hey, let's go back and revisit all those churches and see how they're doing. We're just going to do some follow-up. Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord. See how they are. Back in chapter 13 and 14, it's all about this trip they took. They left Antioch of Syria. Jerusalem's down here. 200 miles or so north is Antioch. That's where we're starting. That's what we're talking about this week. Paul Barnabas and somebody else. Mark. Right, Riley? Mark. The guy who writes the gospel of Mark. Those three guys leave Antioch, go to the coast, sail to Cyprus, evangelize in Cyprus, then they go back, uh, they go up to what we would call modern Turkey today. Uh, and in Perga, Mark quits. He leaves. And he doesn't go back to his home church. He goes back to Jerusalem. That's where his mom lives. So he goes back home to mom. But Paul and Barnabas continued to the Galatian churches of Antioch. That's Antioch of Syria. That's Antioch of Pisidia. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. What happened in Lystra? Something bad happened in Lystra to Paul. Yeah, he's stoned. He's stoned to death. They throw rocks at him till they think he's dead. Then they drag him out of town so the authorities won't kill them for lynching this guy. And he sur- survives somehow. A little help. He got a little outside help to survive that. So anyway, uh, this is uh, now about 18 months after the end of the trip, the first trip. Paul's saying, look, now that all the dust has settled and we're all on the same page on the gospel, let's go back to Cyprus and back to the Galatian churches and see how they're doing. Let's go follow up. Um, and that seemed like a good idea. And based on the context of the rest of this, I think it's obvious Barnabas says, yeah, you know, when do you want to leave? But we have a rub. We have a problem, right? In verse 34 and following, look what happens. Barnabas as they're talking about the details and the logistics of this missionary journey, wanted to take John called Mark along with them. But Paul kept insisting they should not take him over and out. I'm not going with him. I can't trust him. He fumbled on the goal line, and I'm just not going to give him the ball again. Now, down the road, maybe, I'm not saying he's not saved. I'm not saying he's not fixable, but he doesn't have enough credibility. Whatever Mark's been doing for the last 18 months hasn't been sufficient to make Paul feel secure that we can depend on you under fire, so we're not going to do it. What do you know about Barnabas? Going for Paul, no. Barnabas, yeah. Number one, Barnabas is Mark's cousin. So some people make a big deal about that, but I don't think he's doing this because he's related. I think Barnabas is just the kind of guy that always tries to find something good in everybody to a fault sometimes. But it's pretty important because there was a guy named Saul who was a professional Christian killer, who had a miraculous conversion, and the early church initially couldn't believe this guy who was killing us is really one of us. And who's the guy that got the ball rolling? Hey, this is the real deal. We can trust this guy. Who convinced him, Meg? 
Barnabas did, didn't he? Barnabas is called the son of encouragement. He's an encourager. Okay, So this is true to their form. This is true to the way they tend to think. I don't think he's uh, trying to just promote his cousin here at all. It just works out that way. But Paul said, no, I, I, he's not ready. He's too wet behind the ears. We're not going to take him along. He deserted us in Pamphylia, Perga Pamphylia, and uh, he didn't finish the work. And I can't trust him yet. And there arose such a sharp disagreement on this policy issue, on this program issue, on this personality uh, issue. They separated, not terribly, they hate each other's guts. They just, for logistical uh, mission purposes, they go on two separate mission trips, which actually is a good thing in the big picture. Barnabas takes Mark, goes to Cyprus. Why did he go to Cyprus? What was the deal? Paul and Barnabas said, hey, let's go back and revisit the places we went, which is Cyprus and Asia Minor. So what happens is, Barnabas says, look, I'm going to respectfully disagree. I'm quite sure we can trust this guy, and I'm willing to, to do it myself. So I'm going to take Mark, and we're going to go to Cyprus. We're going to go to phase one of the first missionary journey. We'll follow up that way. And then Paul says, okay, well, I'm going to take this guy from Jerusalem who just happened to be back up here, Silas, because he's solid. And he's a Roman citizen, which is going to help us a couple of times. And I'm going to go back over to the area that we uh, visited in Asia Minor. So what you end up happening is you actually have a lot more ground covered. Plus, watch this. Um, let's, let me read the rest of it. It just textually says what I just said, I guess. Barnabas took Mark with him, went to Cyprus. That's the island there. First part of the first missionary journey. That's what they start with. Um, but Paul chose Silas, not Mark. And so it's not Paul and Barnabas now. It's Paul and Silas. And they're going to pick up Timothy and Lister, by the way. Uh, and they left Antioch, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And they were traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So what happened is, as it turns out, Paul and Silas go back not just to follow up the initial missionary thrust here, while Paul's, after he does that, is discerning what he should do next, he gets called the famous Macedonian vision, and he goes up to Macedonia. He goes across the Hellespont, as it's called, and goes from Asia to Europe for the first time. So Paul's second missionary journey ends up being the first gospel penetration into Europe. Uh, Macedonia and Achaia, today we just call that Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, those kind of places. Now, Acts doesn't tell us what Barnabas does with Mark after Cyprus. It just tells us that's their plan. But early church tradition, which I think is reliable, tells us that after they revisited the believers in Cyprus, that they sailed to Caesarea, Jerusalem, and then went across North Africa and started churches. So rather than what Paul and Barnabas thought they were going to do and wanted to do with a good heart, let's go back and follow up the churches we had planted earlier what ends up happening because of the disagreement is they follow up the churches, but Paul takes the gospel to Europe and Barnabas takes it to Africa. Is that any good? Is that a good thing? That's like going from you know A ball to double A ball to triple A ball to the major leagues, man. The church is getting in the major leagues. What Jesus said, get it out everywhere, is actually starting to happen in part because of this disguised good news. Now, by the way, uh, Silas is better known as Silvanus, and we'll say it, make a point about that in a moment. But uh, take this to heart. Let's think about the way these guys dealt with this disagreement. Let's dissect this a little bit before we stop. I think the reason that we have good news, in fact, maybe, let me, let me show you some stuff before we even do that. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 9. You know, it'd be easy to read that and say, well, now Paul and Barnabas hate each other's guts, and they, they're trying to convince everybody else that in the church that the other's a bad guy and they can never get over it and their feelings are hurt and it's ho- horrible and it's not what I expected and uh, I'm disappointed and so hurting people hurt people and so Barnabas went on a campaign against Paul and Paul against Barnabas. When the Beatles first came to America, uh, one of the first press conferences, they asked the guys, they said, have you heard about the uh, the campaign in Detroit? to stamp out the Beatles. And Ringo said, yeah, we heard about that, and we're starting a campaign to stamp out Detroit. So, you know, that's the way Christians sometimes do when they disagree about the carpet, you know. It's like, uh, I can't get over it. But look at this. Just a few years later, after this disagreement about who should go on the trip, 
we read this about Barnabas in Paul's writings. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.3, My defense to those who question my apostleship is just examine where I'm coming from. Do we not have a right to eat and drink like everybody else? Do we not have the right to have a believing wife, even like the rest of the apostles, including uh, the brothers of the Lord Jesus and Cephas himself? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? I mean, once we get established feeding churches, shouldn't you guys support us so we don't have to make tents all day long? You know, we don't have to have a regular job because we're uh, investing in you. And then he says, who it, uh, and my, my point is, I could go on, but I'm going to stop on that. He's talking about Barnabas in a very positive way as a legitimate minister. Okay, just notice that in passing. Is it, do only me and Barnabas are separate from the other leading uh, missionaries? No, we have the same kind of rights and privileges, that kind of thing. Look at uh, Colossians 4. Now, this is several years after 1 Corinthians, which was written about 56. Now we're talking about Colossians is written 60 or 61, roughly. So we're moving through time. But look at this. Colossians 4, if I can find it here. See here someplace. Yeah. And Marie, it took, it took us a long time to find it, didn't it? Marie, we're talking about page uh, 1902 in the uh, Rivalry Study Bible. Um, Colossians 4.10. Paul signing off on this letter and he's saying, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, who? Mark about uh, whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, i got to warn you, he's a bad guy. I don't like him. He bombed out that first missionary journey. Don't have anything to do with him. No. If he comes to town, welcome him. He's a good guy, Joe. This is Paul a little bit later, and no doubt Mark did well in that second missionary journey, probably. That's one reason he's so happy about it. Now watch this one. Look at First Peter 5, verse 12. Uh, we know Silas, his formal name is Silvanus, his nickname is Silas, uh, works with Paul during his second missionary journey. But after that, um, Silas starts working ministry-wise with Peter. And we read this about uh, Silas, Silvanus, at the end of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Through Silvanus, that's Silas, our faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying to you, this is the truth. This is the grace of God. Do it. Stop doubting and pouting and keep on trusting and obeying, especially what First Peter is saying. But through Silvanus, that means Silvanus is writing it down. Peter is uh, dictating, right? She who is in Babylon, some type, people take that literally, but Babylon in the first century was in ruins. Nobody lived there. That's code for Rome. That's where Paul, uh, Peter is here. She who is in Rome, the church in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son. Who does Peter call his son? They're tight. Mark. Okay, Mark was a believer when Paul and Barnabas was disagreeing. Two people of goodwill making a judgment call could disagree on whether this young guy was fit to go on that particular trip, but nobody doubted that uh, he was a Christian with a potential, and Paul saw that and talks about it. So go back to Acts 15. That's kind of the rest of the story. Sometimes people don't talk about it. But let's dissect how they dealt with this disagreement, and then I'll stop. Happy ending. All, all my messages have happy ending because everybody's happy when they're over, right, when we end them. We're, we're close to the happy ending. Uh, the first thing they did is they talked about it themselves. So often I see people will, will disagree and then they call me or they call Homer. They don't talk to the person they're mad at. They call Homer or they call me or they call Ron. And my thing is, hey, you're talking to the wrong person. You know, if Euodia is mad at Syntyche, Euodia, don't call me to try to lobby. Talk to talk to Syntyche, you know. And if you can't do that, I'll go with you just to mediate. But I'm not on anybody's side. Because I found out a long time ago, when somebody's mad, the matter they get, the less objective they get. So... If I'm going to tell uh, Matt how terrible Clay is, you know, even if I'm not trying to exaggerate, I probably do. And guess what? Clay's got his side of the story. It's always my side, his side, and what actually happened, God's side. And what you're trying to do is get it all together. But the best way to do this is get, just if you got a problem with somebody, go talk to them about it, right? And that's what they did. Notice it doesn't say they disagreed, so Paul had a congregational meeting to denounce Barnabas or something, or 
called the deacons aside and said, don't listen to Barnabas, he's a bad guy. So P slash B, what does that stand for? Paul and Barnabas talked directly about the issue. Number two, they agreed to disagree. This is a judgment call. You know, uh, wise believers could differ on whether this guy's ready to go yet. Uh, Barnabas is ready to stake his whole trip on it. Paul just says, I can't trust him yet. And someday maybe, and it worked out. So they agreed to disagree, and then each acted consistently with their differing convictions, which means Barnabas took Mark and Paul didn't. And so they're both happy <laughs> in that way. And then thirdly, they continue to serve the Lord and the church without bitterness, grudges, or forming cliques to try to convince everybody that Barnabas is a bad guy or Paul's a bad guy. That's what happened, and that's what should happen. Now, I've already referred to them by name, but real quick, Philippians 4. Riley's sitting there disappointed. You see, I see the happy ending slipping further away. But no, no, it's, this is all part of the plan. It's all, so, you know. A preacher Saturday night was scratching out his notes and changing everything. And a little kid, little his son goes, Hey, Daddy, you only say what God tells you to say from the pulpit, right? He said, Yeah, of course. Little kid says, Why are you scratching some of it out? Because he wants you to refine it, you know. Probably shorten it for me, right? Now watch this. Philippians 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren in the church, whom I long to see, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord. And dealing with issues, I urge Euodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. You know why Paul is saying, I want Euodia and Syntyche to get along? Because they're not getting along. That's why he's saying that. Now, Yodia is a, a Greek word that means success, and Syntyche is a name that means lucky. And it's bad luck to be superstitious, so don't worry about that. Uh, live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true comrade, that's the Greek word Suzuzi, that's a proper name. He's writing this to the leading elder to actually uh, pray about this. Uh, I ask you to help these women get along. Tell them to get directly together and talk about it, and then agree to disagree if necessary and move on. But not, let's not destroy the church over this. Uh, Suzuki, I ask you to help these women. Well, you know what? One of them must not really be saved. Let's just take a guess. I'm going to say Euodia is not saved because I don't like the term success. I'm, I don't want to be successful. Uh, Syntyche, how many think Syntyche is not saved? I ain't the problem. What's this? Indeed, true comrade, I ask you to help these women, Euodia and Syntyche, get along, who have shared my struggle on the gospel together Clement, uh, and the rest of their fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. That's the roster of the saved. So both these ladies are saved, but they can't get along. They're never going to be best buds, but that's okay. They don't have to be your enemy because you disagree on what time we start or what the color of the carpet is, that kind of thing. Let me ask you a question, and I am going to close. Round of applause now. Anybody married in, the, in here? Is anybody married this morning? Just wondering. Anybody married at all? Okay. Have any of you married people ever had, most of you probably this has never happened, but just hypothetically, have any of the married couples in here ever had a disagreement about anything? I hate to go there, because so many of us never have a disagreement about anything in our marriages. Have you ever had a disagreement with your, your spouse, Jeff? I married you right up here. I told you not to do that, you know? It's better, easier preached than done, right? Do you get a, does one disagreement mean divorce? Should it? Now, I think some people can sin so grossly, Erwit Debar, Deuteronomy 24, uh, Pornea, Jesus in Matthew 5 and 19, that one person can total a marriage. But you always fight to make it work. Sometimes you can't. But one disagreement, especially about minor stuff, it may be, uh, important the way the table's set up or the way the pictures are hung or, what color of the, the walls are in your house. I mean, women have a sense for that that men don't have. But that's not worth divorcing over. If, you know, if Dale wants white and Debbie wants something that's actually stylish, you shouldn't divorce her for having class. You just shouldn't do that, you know? But sometimes in church circles, uh, we do this to each other, and it's not a good thing. So, what should you do, Euodia? Jared, is okay if I call you Euodia? What should I, what should you do, Euodia, next time you get bent out of shape with Syntyche? Russell over there. What do you think you should do? I'd say you should probably talk, if it's important enough to be mad about, you need to go talk to each other about it, initiate it. 
if you have to disagree on the issue, agree to disagree, and then live consistently with your personal convictions. But keep on hanging in there. Keep on serving the Lord. Keep on serving the church. Don't be bitter. Don't hold grudges. And don't try to form cliques against Euodia or Syntyche. That's what that means. That's what that says. Do it and you'll be blessed. Father, I want to thank you that this passage tells us in very clear ways that real believers can disagree about really important stuff. I mean, who's going on the second missionary journey? This is not insignificant, but it's not an absolute essential salvific issue whether Mark goes or doesn't go. Help us to realize a lot of times, and me too, we have some hot buttons, some things that are really sensitive to us, and if somebody does something different, it tends to make us upset and really bugs us. It's like having a little piece of rock in our shoe. It just really, really irritates us. And sometimes we go more than pray about it. We talk to second, third, fourth parties and get them to pray about it, and we start a big forest fire when really... We've probably been forgiven so much we ought to forgive most of the little things that really don't matter anyway, just preemptively. And if we just can't do that, like Paul and Barnabas couldn't just ignore this. It, was, it had to be dealt with. They talked about it directly. Uh, they agreed to disagree based on their personal convictions. And they respected each other's convictions, even though they were different. And then they didn't go on a campaign against each other. They continued to work together you know, down the road. So help us to see that. I think that can help us, Father, in so many areas, not just in church, but in work and extended family issues. Help us to uh, save up the big arguments for the really big, important issues. And most of the stuff we argue about isn't going to even matter next week or a month from now. So forgive us for making that too big of a deal too often. Uh, it's a lot more fun to talk to four of my friends about what a jerk uh, my neighbor is, or one of the deacons is, or not that we have any bad deacons here, Lord, but uh, uh, that can be kind of fun. And when they pat you on the head and feel sorry for you, but forgive us for wanting to do that over what's right, building up the church to love and good works. Uh, I look at this group, wonderful group of people, so much potential, so much love for, for you and for this church. And I pray that uh, over the years as we go on, uh, that uh, we'd only get stronger in our devotion to the Lord and more willing to serve you uh, through uh, this body of believers to your glory. We pray for the ladies who are going to come home later this evening. Uh, we pray for safety for them. We pray this whole weekend will be edifying for all of them. And we thank you for the opportunity to think deeply about some important principles today from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.